From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you via Zoom on Sirius XM. We've been via Zoom since March 2020. Zoom keeps us away from each other, but it keeps everybody on the show almost all the time. Everyone's here as they are today. Adi Weiner still recovering from a hot afternoon bike ride to his house, but he's here. Shane Jensen sporting his ever-present Boston Red Sox cap. Eric Bradlow sporting his ever-present competing American League East baseball gear. Yankees, of course. And this is Cade Massey. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We're going to open, as we usually do, with a segment on COVID being um, an analytics world and being one that affects sports and everything else in our lives. We can't shake it, fellas. We can't shake it. Still, still seems relevant. I am curious in the, in the world of coronavirus, what has caught your eye? Well, I mean, it obviously, you know, you can't watch any show now without the Delta variant being mentioned. And um, I think what we have to do is we have to look at the vaccination rate, right? So what we think we know right now is that of people age 18 plus, roughly 60% are fully vaccinated. So obviously doing math, that means 40% are not. So let's go back to a time. Now, maybe the math works this way. I'd love to hear your guys' opinion. Let's imagine at the peak, there was, I think, somewhere like 300,000 cases um, a day. And there were something like 3,000 deaths a day. And that was with 0% vaccinated. Okay. So should we expect now that with 60% vaccinated, I can just linearly extrapolate and take 40% of those numbers and that it won't, and maybe with the Delta variant, it might even be larger, but as a lower bound, should we have an expectation of 120,000 cases a day and somewhere around 1,500 deaths a day? Um, Or do we think that, you know, that's assuming, of course, the same, maybe the same use of mass and distancing, which you could argue are worse now than they were before. So I said it's a lower bound. I'm just wondering whether this linear math is a good extrapolation. Before you even do that, though, because you're asking a a question with lots of nuance, but you got to go a little simpler first, because we've done this on the show before. Factor out the numbers who are who who have Im- immunity from having contracted it before. So go go beyond sixty. You got sixty from vaccination, and then what percentage you want to put on top of that from people who, whether or not they were vaccinated, they've had the coronavirus itself. They have antibodies for other reasons. I'm going to guess a number, but Adi would probably know the number. Maybe ten percent. Adi have thirty million people had coronavirus. And of course, uh, no, some, I, I, no, it has to be more than that. And then some fraction of those people have also been vaccinated. So what well, fraction? I think, of- yeah, I mean, I think we had 30 million actual positive into unique individuals. I would at least double that to, um, in, in terms of people who were undiagnosed. Um, so and then, of course, many of the people who are undi- who got it, they also got vaccinated. So if you imagine 60 million people had it and 60 percent of those 60 million um, already vaccinated, that leaves another 24 million. million. Yeah. Which is like 8% of the population. So maybe we're at somewhere around 68% of the people that are fully Let's call vaccinated. it two and three. Are, two and three, three are immune. Yep. So, and, and to, to, but you're, I mean, the, the problem with the linear math is that the Delta variant is probably twice as contagious. I said lower bound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, because I think that with two thirds of the people mostly immune, that really slows down the spread. So you got to do a kind of, a, I mean, you could try to do an epidemiological calculation. And, and roughly the doubling of the 
you got the doubling of the of the contagiousness is roughly counteracted by the but I I just I tell you I'll be much more empirical. Just look to England. I think their vaccination rates are about ours. Um, their their peak in the Delta and, and they've turned the corner. I mean, whether that's real or not, I, I'll go for it that they have. They're starting to see um, decreases now in the in the numbers of cases per day. And I think they looked at about half. I think they hit about half their peak, um, their previous. Okay, peak. So my estimate wasn't that bad off. I said the peak Not was three hundred thousand. I said one twenty. I mean, I'm, I wasn't of order of magnitudes off. So you're saying, Adi, in your belief, if we see similar numbers, we could see one hundred and fifty thousand to two hundred thousand cases a day. And we could see fifteen hundred to two thousand deaths a day within a month, assuming we follow England's pattern. Uh, I, I don't know what the English death rate was. I think that because that that one is, is something I need to look up. Maybe maybe we can look that up in the break. Um, but their case rate was certainly about half. I think their death rate is a lot smaller because you have much more vaccination among the more vulnerable. Great. Point. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing, again, about I mean, comparing sort of us, the UK, in terms of like kind of the national overall kind of vaccination rate. I mean, the UK is not a particularly good proxy for America in terms of the heterogeneity in that vaccination mm-hmm. rate across kind of regions, right? I mean, I guess I don't know this for sure, but I would I would guess if you broke down, you know, London and the UK into like, you know, their, their states or whatever, their version of states, that you would not see the kind of vast kind of variance in sort of vaccination rate by region, um, which I think is going to be a big part of kind of the story. And it continues to be a huge part of the kind of the story in America. A fair I, question. I'll probably, I'll probably take the other side of it. Yeah, I think so. Too. I think the other thing that caught my eye, which relates directly what Adi said, I remember. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, this wasn't a forecast. It was just building on what Adi said, which is, you know, Adi mentioned the um, who is vaccinated now. And it's, you know, we all made a guess. I don't remember what the numbers were. I think I was the highest, but I don't remember. But what fraction of people age 65 plus would get vaccinated? And we're now at 89.5 percent. Mm-hmm. Mean, it's going to end up over 90%. So, Adi, your point is a good one. Even if the number of cases are the same, the people that were dying are vaccinated. And That's so right. we might see a much lower death percentage, much lower. Because I mean, 90% and some of those remaining 10% probably had COVID. And so there might be a much lower death. Although, as you said, Adi, on the other hand, though, the Delta variant is killing people at a much higher rate that are younger. So we have to counterbalance that as well. Uh, also, there's other thing. This is not this is something that's quite important. The vaccine Delta otherwise seems to be very protective against serious illness and death, very protective against death. The vaccination. But it, but it really does seem to dwindle the older you get. And that's because of dwindling immune systems. So the people Yes, 90% of the 65 and older are vaccinated, but they don't quite have that 99% protection that, you know, even a 50-year-old would have. Okay, I didn't know that, that the, the efficacy yeah. of the vaccine is also a function of age. That's interesting. And you're saying that's because the immune system just doesn't respond to the vaccine and produce the antibodies that the younger system. Well, that's part of it. Also, um, we're just weaker. Um, you know, so if you start to looking at yes. the people who are dying, People who are very at the edge, end of their life, whether it's from cancer or, or heart disease or, or whatever you have, it generally isn't the disease that they have that kills them. Um, it's some opportunistic, opportunistic infection or, or virus, whether it be pneumonia um, or COVID. And so what you're finding is that people who are already hospitalized or on hospice, um, they're, the, they're the weakest candidate. And that does sort of inflate the numbers um, 
by itself. And, and it means that the vaccine is least effective on the most, most aged part of the population. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to when we can expect this thing to top out, because one of the features of what's going on in countries around the world is that it is dropping. It seems to be dropping about as precipitously as it rose. And I, the question then begins, like, OK, what, what determines where that peak is? Because we were talking about the UK before. Let's just talk about some specific numbers. Adi, according to the numbers I'm looking at, which came from Eric Topol, or Topol, I'm not sure how he pronounces his last name, which is a great follow on Twitter for all things COVID, our world in data. This is late July, so relatively recent data, with the daily confirmed COVID count in the UK peaking right around 700,000 per, no, 700 per million people, 700 per million people. And the peak, which came late last year, was, you know, like 850 per million people. So it's significantly higher than half of the peak for what it was worth in terms of daily confirmed cases. Less than the peak, but, but significantly more than half the peak. But in general, I'm asking, okay, I mean, it goes back to Eric's question. Given some of these kind of back of the envelope calculations, what do we think we're going to? And then we can kind of forecast based on this exponential rise we're on when we'll get there. But if presumably you're looking UK, spike up, spike down. Netherlands, spike up, spike down. Tunisia, spike up, spike down. They're all looking quite similar. And so presumably we've got this crazy spike right now, but we're going to peak somewhere. What's going to, what determines that? Epidemiologically. So let me add two pieces into that. First of all, um, the faster it, the more contagious it is, the faster it rises and the faster it falls. Absolutely. That's, that's something that's actually counterintuitive. Um, because it burns the slower, through the, the candidates. So it, it, it burns through it. The second thing is uh, vaccination rates um, slow the prog- progress, but that's just a constant through the, I think that it doesn't change the shape. Um, and probably shame, shapes the exponential growth, but that kind of figures in. I don't think they're that different. Um, the other big difference is, is that within the country, is it happening in the same uh, time? So most of the countries that you described are kind of more or less homogeneous geography, climate. Um, like India, for example, in any given province, it raced up and raced down. But if you look at the entirety of the country, it looked much sl- smaller because okay. of the staggered nature by which the t- locations that were hit. United States has this long looking if you look at the United States, particularly over the winter, it's this long looking thing because we just, you know, it hit here, then it hit there. Um, the, the summertime last summer and this summer are the, is when the people in the South are indoors the most while the people in the North are outdoors the most. That's a twist. So I don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's going to go down much faster than the, the previous uh, just by looking at the other countries. Well, what do we think that, what do we think the kind of maximum, the maximum percentage of population that will end up having either the vaccination or the, the disease. Wow. I, Overall well, in the uh, nation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think if, if you had to ask, ask me, I think, do you guys think, I think is it unreasonable to assume that, well, we might have 75% of the population that gets vaccinated. I don't think that's an unreasonable upper bound. And I would say of the remaining 25%, I'm going to say, somewhere around 85% of the population will either be vaccinated or have gotten COVID. Okay. So it's 18% more than where we're estimating we are right now. Um, yep. And by the way, I, I would also say that I know uh, this is another thing, Adi, uh, that caught my eye. 
Remember those numbers we had heard before under the alpha variant of, oh, well, we'll reach herd immunity at 70%. Well, that's gone now, obviously, because of the more contagious variant. Now I'm hearing the number is going to be is well into the 90s. Well, that's really high. Well, that's, um, I'm just saying, given it's five to six times more contagious that, you know, and you have to have a much smaller population for yeah. it to die out. Again, the numbers I just read suggest it could be between 92 and 95 percent. I'm, to reach I'm glad you raised that. But for, again, for it to die out, uh, I, I mean, again, I, I, I think we're overly focusing on one single number when like, you know, what, what we're really talking about, like even if we get to 75 percent, is that the, the variance by region is going to probably, I, I think there's going to be parts of the United States that we never get above 60%. And there's probably going to be parts of the United States, you know, right. or, or, or subpopulations where we get above 90%. Okay. And yeah. like, it, 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 is, is what drives herd immunity kind of the min of those? Or is it like, it's probably not the mean, right? Because, you know, if you've got certain parts of the U.S. that are kind of just, you know, that, that don't have that herd immunity, that are just kind of like sort of where it's endemic or whatever. I mean, I, I think, you know, what what aspect, you know, herd immunity, we keep talking about like it's we're shooting for a single number when really what aren't we kind of shooting for a whole distribution? I would think I, I love your question because I think it's so rare in statistics where um, like a nice, a great let's call it thing to maximize is the minimum of a distribution where in this case that may well be true. And that's one thing. Um, and the second thing is the thing that many of us are more worried about is, you know, last time I checked Adi and you're a math guy too, right? Delta is not the last letter in the Greek alphabet, right? So what <laughs> happens when there's the epsilon variant or the, you know, God forbid it gets down to Lambda or Tau or one of those letters. Um, if it will stop when we reach the end of the alphabet, at least, right? <laughs> oh, well, maybe we might just go around to alpha. So two, we've got alpha max three. 26 variants to deal with. So yeah, that's good. Well, I, I guess my point is that um, if we're all concerned, which many of us are, about future variants that might be more severe than this one, then your comment, Shane, about the minimum matters even more. Because let's imagine there's a subpopulation or a subgeographic area where the virus is still going wild. Well, that leaves more chance for another variant that might be even more resistant to the vaccine. No, no. I mean, you know, we could also get lucky with these variants. I mean, we, we think about these new variants, like the possibility of new variants is probably moving us in a more negative direction. The more positive direction would be if we actually get a variant that is incredibly infectious, but not particularly deadly. That thing will take over. And just not be as deadly. And then we're even into like more of a like common cold kind of situation oh, or something let me like ask that you, with this, COVID, right? Well, this gets isn't back. That, isn't that kind of the, that, that's the best possible virus is, variant as I, far as we're me, concerned. Let me ask Adi, because we asked Adi this question probably a hundred times early on when we were talking about COVID. Wouldn't we expect those two things to be highly correlated, meaning they both are a function of this thing called viral load, is that viral load makes it more infectious, but probably also makes it so that it's more severe? Is it possible that there could end up being a variant, just on the data you've seen, that could be much more infectious, take over, but less deadly? And the answer might be yes. It could be. I mean, generally, the viral load and death, or death rate or severity are correlated for obvious reasons. More is more. But it could be possible that a, a particular variant comes along that very easily replicates, but doesn't bind as well. So it replicates ah. in the cell very well, but doesn't bind to the to the lungs or something. Uh, uh, so once it takes over the cell, it's very fast, but it might not. You know what? That's that, to be honest, that that uh, that question is really out of my my ken. I don't know if I can give a good answer 
Um, succeeded, you have to guys. Ask a we've biologist. succeeded. We've been trying to get Adi to say that for nine months now. We finally found something about this pandemic he can't answer. Oh, well, I mean, I, I have an ask, answer for but, us next week. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. Guys, I want to read, I want to take this moment because it's kind of uh, fits the conversation to read one of our mailbag. We have a few pandemic related mailbag questions. These are emails. You guys are always encouraged to email us moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We got one from David Galinsky. I'm just going to read the whole thing in full. It's, I think it's a, a good note for us. Moneyball guys, I'm a 75-year-old physician currently in remission from chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, but due to my treatment as well as my underlying disease physiology, I do not make antibodies because I have no B-cell lymphocytes. Thus, I tested negative for anti-COVID antibodies after being vaccinated. Anyone who's infected with coronavirus is a potential killer for me. The people I'm most worried about are the asymptomatic carriers who are not taking any precautions. Because of the asymptomatic carriers in our population, I cannot enter any enclosed spaces. When I listen to your discussions, I feel you are often cavalier about the chances of someone killing me. The idea that the policy of waiting for everyone to be infected in order to stop the pandemic is anathema to me. David Galinsky, MD. So I, I'll just start. Um, first of all, obviously, we all have a lot of empathy for David and everything he's gone through, and also the fact that he's immunocompromised, and that the vaccine is likely less to be effective uh, or ineffective maybe for him. I don't think we've ever been cavalier or commented. As a matter of fact, I think one of the public service messages I hope we've tried to say is that the vaccine has an impact also on other people. And we've talked a lot in this show about asymptomatic spreading. And that's the big fear from this Delta variant is that, as Adi even mentioned earlier in today's show, is that you could be asymptomatic, but it doesn't mean you can't be a spreader. If anything, we've had the greatest empathy for um, in some sense, um, the either immunocompromised or even in this case right now, there's a lot of debate. Adi was on schools for a while. Now, of course, the challenge is people under the age of 12 can possibly get the Delta variant uh, more easily and they can't be vaccinated right now. So there's large sets of populations of people for whom, unfortunately, they'll end up being uh, collaterally damaged from people who choose not to get the vaccine. So I, I'll just say to David, if you felt we were being cavalier about it or felt that we weren't empathetic or very concerned about the unvaccinated, I'll just speak for myself, that's not right. I mean, it's not, it doesn't represent my feelings. I feel a huge amount of empathy and concern for those people. I, I, Wait, I go, ahead. Buddy, go ahead. No, I just that policymakers, they have to make, they have to know information and they have to act on that information. So you got to, as a policymaker, you got to ask the question, well, how contagious is someone who, who, uh, who say, has a, who's been vaccinated but might have it? How frequent is it? How common is it? How does it compare to other, other um, concerns that the society has to deal with? You can't just, you, what you can't cavalierly do is shut down society because of COVID uh, in perpetuity. And that's what's extremely important to to measure these things and make cost-benefit analysis is regarding them, and that is something that I think that far too often that component of the of the of the calculation has just been sort of left into limbo. Um, but actually, policymakers do have to consider them, and they do matter. Um, I have to say, from one, one one question that I have is is really an open question for me: is to what to what extent is it is it transmissible, um, and then how does that vary by age? 
I would guess that someone like me, if I had an asymptomatic case, I think it's actually not that likely I would have an asymptomatic case. I think maybe someone in their 20s is probably much more likely to have asymptomatic cases. How transmissible are there? Is there data on that? Do we well, have information? So a wrinkle in that is perhaps just before you know you have it. So there's certainly, so it's, it's, you may be early symptomatic or you're just not quite, you know, can, not quite confirmed that you have it and that those people are highly contagious and active. You know, I, I, I feel like this is a category that we do uh, ignore frequently. In fact, I, I feel utterly guilty of not thinking about immunocompromised folks because like just in the last week or two, as we've thought about this thing possibly becoming endemic, we've, it's easy to divide the world into the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and, and, and say, well, you know, those who care are going to be vaccinated and those who, who are going to roll the dice are going to roll the dice. And, you know, a lot of them are going to get it. And then we, we I, I don't think about all the folks who tr- have taken all the precautions they can and they can't get themselves all the way safe. And they, and in, in a world with, where this thing is endemic, I mean, that's their whole life is compromised. It's, it's multi-millions. It's multi-millions of people. Well, it's a, I think it's a great reminder. I think it's a great reminder. I and um, I mean, it's, it's, it's also, it's, we've been, we talk about this stuff every week and we have for well over a year and it's hard to, it's always good to come, bring, come back to center, you know, cause you get, you get numb to 3000 deaths a day or 60,000 new cases this week or whatever you get numb to these numbers and you get numb to the reality of individual lives and so it, I think it's very helpful to hear from people like David and, and um, very much appreciate the note that he dropped us. While we've got the mailbag open, let's grab another one. We've got a couple other um, COVID-related questions. We had one from Don Noble. Don writes, she just kind of throws some stuff at us. Life expectancy. Did y'all see these notes? Y'all see I, these I notes? did. Life expectancy dropped. In the U.S. dropped to 77.3 years old in 2020. This is the largest decline. I don't know what it was before that. I think it was 78. I thought it was one year. I thought it was, it had dropped from 78.3, roughly a year. Okay. So, and one of the ideas here is that COVID is responsible for direct deaths, but also some indirect deaths as well. But Don's, Don's a little skeptical. She says, seems too high. And, and wanted some discussion. I think we had, she might've hit us on Twitter. Somebody else hit us on Twitter. I, I, I knew Adi would have an opinion on this. What do you got, Adi? Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, you have to understand how life expectancy is calculated. What they do is they take the relative risk instantaneously at every age and they integrate it. What that means is essentially they said if the relative risk over this past year stayed constant forever, a hundred years will do, you don't need forever. And then you ask if someone is born today, how long will they expect it to live? And that's where you lost a year on their life. But that's assuming that COVID stays for 100 years with no changes in vaccination rates. And I mean, it just the current year that we just had gets repeated forever. And that's why that life expectancy looks a lot lower than it really would. than they really did. It didn't take a year, a one year off of society's age. No, didn't do that. It's much that's, different. I had no idea. That's super interesting. That methodology seems rather flawed. So what, but what that's the way it's gone. Well, it, see, it's not, so it's not the kind of calculation you use for a pandemic just to give you a sense of the difference. Right. The um, the, pande- the the flu of 1918, when the life expectancy was only about 55 back in 1918, that knocked off 13 years. So uh, it, that it, didn't it, really. Um, but that's because if yeah. if the flu 
stayed forever. So yeah, well, it's an interesting measurement. It's like, okay, so it's, it's an interesting exercise to run. If we lived in these conditions for the next hundred years, how long would people live? It says something about the impact of that thing. That's that if you if, if, if you don't like if you don't like that part of life expectancy calculations, let me point out that there it's based on the mean of a very skewed distribution to start with. So life expectancy has always been a funky calculation. So taking yeah. mean, means of skewed distributions that's that's a bad practice, Shane. Is that what you're suggesting? It's it's not it's not the best practice you can do. Certainly, but my favorite thing about life expectancies is that they're if you condition on where you are, they're always different. So it's it's not a relevant number to anybody except, as Adi points out, those who are born today and will live in this state for the next hundred years. So it's not especially relevant. But it is useful to know for, I mean, any one of us, given our age, have some, some life expectancy. So we three non-Shane people here are born in the same year. What do you think our life expectancy is? Setting aside any physiological differences, just based on our age. We're 53. I'm the only one that's still 53. We're basically all going to be 54 within a few weeks. I would say it's probably about 30 years, yep. if I had to guess. Yep. Okay, because once you hit that number, you got you, you've done so, something right. You've done something well. So it's conditional, but I'll throw out one thing. One of the things about life expectancy calculations, because infant mortality, uh, because of the skewed distribution, uh, uh, acknowledging Shane, infant at mortality. Multi- multimodal. There's a mode and, and, near. There's a mode near yeah. zero. Uh, they're at huge mode near zero because of infant mortality. That has an enormous impact on life expectancy. If you can drop your infant mortality from say three out of a thousand or seven out of a thousand down to two out of a thousand, that actually makes a substantial or a, a measurable increase in the infant more in the total mortality because of the integration of it. The yeah, other, I, I, the, yeah. And the reason just, why just as, so as easy, an extra anecdote yeah. on that, I think I heard that yeah. like most of the kind of almost the entire thing that drives the differences in life expectancy between the United States and say Europe, where Europe is usually has higher life expectancy is that first year is, is essentially natal mortality. Right. And I'm going to throw in another wrench into that. The United States, every state and not to mention every country has a different definition of what's considered a birth. So that denominator is up to the individual country to decide on. So, for example, in the United States, if you're born at 24 weeks, which is almost practically it's extremely unlikely for a, 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 a baby born at 24 weeks to survive, that's considered a live birth. Um, in other countries, 24 weeks would be considered. No, that doesn't count. That's a, that's a that's a preemie. That's not a that's not a life that and, and it's not about morality or philosophy. It's really about the medical care system. And when something is born, so what do you do with these with essentially early pregnancies? How do you include them? And they actually have an impact on the life, on the on the on the mortality. Super interesting. All right, fellas, as we begin transitioning to the sports world, we have one last mailbag question. COVID related. This is from our friend Benjamin Robinson. Benjamin has been a frequent guest on our show. He is known to the broader world as grinding the mocks. I think he's at grinding the mocks. He does a lot of mock draft stuff for NFL folks. He writes about the distribution of vaccination rates in NFL teams, across NFL teams. So this has been in the news lately as some players protest and other players, some teams have reported their numbers. He says two questions. I wonder if you guys had a guess of what the distribution of vaccinations by team is in the NFL. I saw there was about an 80% rate across the league but team level numbers aren't there. Some teams. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think Sean, Sean McVay, I think came out in the last couple of days and said something like that, that according to him, at least the Rams are above 90%. Well, so, um, but I have also heard that uh, 
you know, the lowest team kind of just passed 60%. So that should give us some range basically to that distribution. Well, Ben's asking, do you think the distribution is normal? If so, does that mean some, some teams likely to be around 50? If it's not normal, what do you think it is? What, what would be impacting teams to be on the higher or lower? Also, by the way, Ben says, shout out to the WNBA with a nearly 100% vaccination rate last season. If only men's sports could keep up with women's sports in this way. So shout out to the WNBA. On that. All right. Any thoughts on this, on this question? Well, I think Shane is right. I think about 90, 95 is probably the upper. And I think, I think 60 would be a little bit, I think that's a little high. I would guess it's closer to 50, um, but I don't really have any way of knowing. I think that the teams are keeping that pretty close to themselves. How would you think about, I mean, what do you think determines this? And do you think it's, um, I mean, do you think statistical distributions are good ways of thinking about it? Or do you think they're going to be skewed by other factors that, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't really. Yeah, I mean, I, culture, I think, has a huge effect and probably has a huge effect on this variant. So I, I, I have a hard time thinking about what the shape of that distribution, that kind of hidden distribution necessarily would be. I, I, could, um, make, I could make an argument for, uh, you know, normal centered at 75 percent. I can also make an argument for you, shapes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you believe it's culture, you know, a social contagion model of getting the vaccine would argue that it could be a U-shaped distribution. If every some people get it, everyone gets it. If a lot of people don't get it, a lot of people don't get it. Can we think about that as kind of a network effect? I and mean, we're using. Yeah, culture. that's what I meant. Like a network effect could create like a U-shaped distribution. OK, interesting. All right. Well, let's take that as a goodbye to COVID conversation for this week. We'll let quarter one go. Come back and join us after the break. We still have three quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You can join us. You can hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically about the world of sports and sports analytics. And we'd love to hear from you. You can send us questions, send us opinions, send us topic ideas, whatever you got at W Moneyball. You can also send us email. It's our mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. That is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We read them all. We get as many as we can onto the show. We just did a handful at the end of first quarter related to COVID. Guys, Open lines here. I think maybe the first place to go coming out of COVID and into sports. And of course, Olympics is a big part of the sports world right now. We had some COVID related news, surprisingly COVID related news. John Rahm is the one that most caught my eye. Got knocked out of the Olympics for a COVID test, which might not be so surprising, but for the fact that he just had, he got knocked out of of the Memorial Tournament just before he won uh, the US Open. He got knocked out. And he said at the time that he had, he said something like, I got, I got antibodies from the, from the disease. I got antibodies from the vaccine. I got everything. And yet here comes another positive test. Ron Yurko, our good buedy over at Carnegie Mellon, hit us up on Twitter and said, someone explain this to me. I don't understand. So we all turn to you, Adi. We always want to turn to you. Explain this one to us. Well, um, I had some ideas. I read an article or two. And the answer ultimately is nobody really knows. Um, but we'll circle back to that. There are a couple of hypotheses. Uh, one, of course, is that the virus, again, can stay in your system inert pieces of the protein that aren't actually transmissible, and they could stay there for a long time. And there's been documented case of the, uh, cases of that. To, in order to confirm that, you have to actually 
look at the virus, try to see if it's active. It's a much more complicated situation. The other hypothesis is that it's an actual second infestation. Um, and they, again, you have to sequence to figure that out. Um, he wasn't particularly sick for many of those. So the bottom line, uh, final, finally, it could just be a plain old false positive, as in mixed up the samples, uh, uh, contamination. Um, it's extremely sensitive test. So if someone has a little bit of material uh, uh, in the laboratory area, if there's an issue, remember they do lots and lots and lots of tests rather rapidly. Um, there is a documented history of false positives. In fact, there was one of the swimmers who, who, who during the trials tested positive, even been vaccinated, having antibodies, even been sick, and then then second immediately tried to do several other tests. There have been baseball players. That was hold on, that wasn't just any swimmer. That was our guest, Pat Forty's daughter. That's that it, well, indeed it was. <laughs> and and so usually, if there's an argument to, to be had, you can do multiple tests and try to explain it. I mean, there was uh, Gio Urshela of the Yankees had a positive and then a negative and, uh, and, and other athletes have had a counter this kind of un, uh, un, inconsistent testing. But that's just part had, of the process. Well, given the false positive, like the fact that false positives are, are, are such a part of the game, why is multiple testing not kind of part of the whole process? Like it right. seems, it right. seems pretty, pretty inefficient and, 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 and arbitrary to just sort of kick somebody out when that fall without at least eliminating 100%. Or, or lowering the probability of a, it being a false positive. Yeah. I have to agree. So uh, we, and, and truthfully, we don't know all the details there, but the Olympics <laughs> testing, testing's not been their forte as Russia has shown in the past. Uh, guys, what sports, what sports? There's so many, there's so many to choose from. What sports have caught your eye in the Olympics so far? Well, I, I, I kind of like, I, can I just make an observation? Did we, when did we decide to kind of just sort of merge the X Games and the Olympic Games together? <laughs> right? Like, you know, skate, sure you know, skateboarding's in now. Yeah. Um, three by three basketball, three on three basketball's in now. Yeah. Um, uh, surfing, break surfing. dance is coming in the next next time round. I will. I look this up. Break surfing. dance is coming in. Unclear when beatboxing is going to be an Olympic sport, but eventually it will be. Um, so Maybe yeah, you're uh, a little more open minded. I'm hearing some. Stuff oh no, about- I, I mean, I'm I'm, oh. I'm I'm just curious about how this like whether this was sort of a conscious decision or it's just sort of like you know you know kind of it's. I mean, there doesn't seem to be much of an opposition to kind of including more events in the Olympics. It does seem weird that somehow we still have to fight every few years about whether or not baseball is a, a truly yeah. international sport when like we have like three different air pistol events and stuff like that. It's, it, uh, the, the decision-making does seem pretty capricious to me. Uh, I will say the but, following. I, I think everyone would agree the major sports in the summer Olympics, which we're now has to be swimming has to be track and field and it has to be gymnastics. Correct. Those they, would be the three. There's no, I don't think there's anything. I mean, basketball, okay, it's in there, but no, those are the three. So those are the ones I've been paying attention to. I've been watching swimming every evening and morning when I get up, because that's the trials typically are in the morning. The gold medal events are in the evening, because, you know, it's 12, 13 hours behind. Um, I've been watching the gymnastics. Obviously, big issue happened today. Um, so let's talk about it. So uh, Simona Biles, who's the, you know, maybe the GOAT, of all time in women's uh, gymnastics. Um, you know, this is an issue that's going to start happening more and more. And I think it's something that has to be addressed. You have to elaborate because uh, some folks may not know this yet. So what, what happened with Boston? Okay. So Simone 
Um, she's the number one ranked uh, Olympic uh, Olympic gymnast in the world, U.S. Uh, she won, I think it was five gold medals in uh, or a number of gold medals in Rio five years ago. She's the number one person on the U.S. team. She was competing in the team event in the finals. Um, she was on the, uh, it wasn't the horse. I think it was the vault. The, the vault, vault, the vault. And yeah. she, um, she basically, um, her dismount was supposed to be a two and a half twist thing. And in midair, she decided to do a one and a half. And she then hugged her teammates and said, I'm done. And people are like, okay, what do you mean? She goes, I'm done. And so everyone at the time thought, oh my God, she injured herself, core muscle, this or that. She came out and said, no, it was a mental issue. And so she decided that she wasn't mentally ready to compete, that uh, she didn't want to compete if she wasn't ready at 100%. And so in the middle of the actual finals, she withdrew herself, which means her place had to be taken by another U.S. Uh, gymnast to compete in the other three events. It's four events. You have three people competing in each of four events. She had competed. This was her first. So the, they had to substitute in someone else to do the other three events. Now, maybe the U.S. wouldn't have won. The U.S. ended up getting silver, which there's nothing wrong with getting team silver. Um, but I think it brought to the forefront, you know, obviously we have another person. She lost, but not because of this, I think. Naomi Osaka, who pulled out of a number of major tennis tournaments because, again, of uh, mental health issues. My view is we're going to have to start, you know, when people say someone's a 30 to 1 favorite. Well, come on. Based on what? Based on zero injuries, zero, I'll call it mental health issues, et cetera. I think we're going to start to see more and more of the of people. Mental illness is a legitimate concern. And, and of course, I'm saying this as the son of a psychiatrist, but it's a legitimate <laughs> injury and concern. And I think we're going to start to see more and more. It was just shocking to people that she pulled out in the middle. And, of and, 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 and by seeing more and more of that, Eric, do you think it's like, the kind of frequency of mental health issues is becoming is increasing or do you just think that historic like we 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 will be acknowledging mental health as the reason for people pulling out more often as opposed to in the past where that was there was enough of a stigma that maybe an injury right. would be made up to kind of cover for it or something like that i think yes to every single thing you said i think um given the scrutiny these athletes face today um both on and off the you know, playing field, if you like, or the gymnastics mat, I think they're under such scrutiny that, yes, I think there's an increase in mental health challenges. I think the pressure they're under, um, that's number one. Two, I think you're right, Shane, there's more of an awareness of it. And three, I think in the past, there was uh, people with similar issues, and they would just diagnose it as something else. So I, I think everything you've said is probably likely to be true. So I, I think it's unfortunate that um, this goes down in one respect, and that is that this is one of the peaks of women's athletics in a four-year cycle. There are more people watching women's sports at this moment than probably any other. Is that, do you think that may be safe to say? Probably than any other? Yes. Um, and so I just hate to see, you know, arguably the top female Olympian in the games in terms of expectation uh, go out on something that might be labeled, you know, a weakness of some kind. Um, it's, I think it's, 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 I hope that we, I hope people speak up in a way that kind of, um, undermines that because that, that is a line some will take. And it's, you know, there's a, 
there's there's a lot of phenomenal female athletes out there that don't get their due and it's a shame that on this stage there's a there's a little wrinkle there's a little wrinkle and i'm not saying look she needs to take care of herself and this is as eric said always been a part of the game um it's i think it's just politically i think it's kind of unfortunate yeah you know i think it's interesting because professional athletes um in olympic style athletes they they often in their careers are so successful because they're so good that only at the, the highest, highest levels of competition do they finally face. Um, is it really hard? And that is often very difficult. And you don't really know whether the individual has the, has the mental makeup or ha- they haven't had the experience in such difficult competition. Um, one of the things that I always like about I mean, baseball. Just to be clear, I mean, she clearly yeah. has having done all this stuff before, but yes, she's hand, so good, right? No, Yeah. She's it, like, she's she almost like, <laughs> Created the her but let's be problem. clear, just I, Adi may be getting to this, but you know, it was interesting. Just one second, Adi. Just the day before that she had pulled out, which was a day and a half ago, my wife and I were watching in the evening, and there was actually an interview with Simone Biles. And she was saying that she's not the same athlete at age 24 that mm-hmm. she was at 19. And while whether she was foreshadowing the mental issues, but she was saying she wakes up every morning, she's hurting. She's not as flexible. She can't train as hard. So it could also be, Adi, that what you're saying is true, is that she's not the athlete. She's not the Olympian. She was five years. It doesn't mean she's still not the best in the world, but the effort and the exertion and the mental strain it would take to compete at that highest level. She's not at the 19 year old Simone Biles level. She's at the 24 year old level. And that right. could be very different. And also throw in the, think about the age curves by sport. That age curve for, for, for gymnastics has got to be one of the sharpest declines of any sport. I mean, have you ever seen, I mean, 24 year old is, is really aged for, I mean, the flexibility, typically the size, so many of them are 14 or 15 years old when they, when they run, rise to international prominence. Um, But we have to stand, stand back and also recognize that, you know, as Yogi Berry said, it's a, you know, it's a, it's 50% or 90% half mental where it's something that's something funny. He said of that nature, but sports is, has an enormous mental, mental component to it. And if you're not, can you imagine what it takes yeah. to do the stuff that those guys do in gymnastics? I mean, if you just blip at the wrong second and you die practically. I mean, it's ridiculous the, the mental state you have to be in to put yourself through the stuff that they do. But the enormous stress of competing, I, was, I watched a lot of swimming and they, they had a, a story about one of the um, Olympic uh, challengers. I, I can't remember what it might have been the 200 free, was, but the, the guy wasn't expect. the athlete was so nervous that he wanted to withdraw. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. having such a he was he was so um, uh, mentally just so out of it. And the coach actually talked to him, explained to him, no, you're just you're just hyperactive. Um, so it's a it's a difficult challenge to get an athlete to, to compete at that level. I haven't competed anywhere near that level, but I used to compete as a swimmer and I was terrified of, of, <laughs> of, perform, of performing. It made me bonkers. Yeah. And you also, I mean, I guess in our previous conversations brought up this idea of dealing with pain and injury. And I mean, we've seen it that we see across all sports, you know, the fact that like athletes kind of that are still performing at a high level can kind of get out of the game because they're just tired of dealing with kind of pain. And I mean, it reminds me kind of David Ortiz, I mean, who retired still when he was a very effective hitter. Uh, from baseball, but he was just like, you know, this, you know, it's, 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 it hurts too much these days to mm-hmm. kind of just go th- do this to myself year after a, year. And I kind of feel non, like I've, I've accomplished what I needed to. That's right. I was just, so I was just going to ask, do we think this year, both because of COVID and the uncertainty 
the travel strain. And also, let's remember, it's been five years since the last Olympics, not four. I think I'm seeing, and Adi, I know you're watching probably as much swimming as I have. I've seen on paper more upsets this year than I'd ever seen in the past. So I'm wondering, is there just more uncertainty in this Olympics? Because, you know, Katie Ledecky, she's not, I mean, I don't think anybody thought the 400 meter, she was the Olympic champion. Uh, she came in second. She got beaten by a woman, uh, Ariane uh, Titmus from uh, Australia. Um, Lily King, who hadn't been beaten in five years in the 100 meter backstroke. Um, got beaten by an American. Actually, Lily King came in third. Um, the number of, Adi, I'm sure you saw this as well, the last two nights, the number of non-favorites to win their event, I've never seen that high a number. And you would think in swimming, there, there's, I mean, there's a range. In other words, someone that's supposed to swim 55 is not going to swim 59. They might swim 56. Someone, you know, so to me, the fact that there's this many upsets just suggests Five years is different than four, and COVID had an effect, and so did the travel, and all of this has just led to more uncertainty. Oh, yeah. I think I'm seeing lots of it. I can't wait till all the data is in and we can stop talking anecdotes and we can really do some calculations, but we'll probably have to wait until after the, the, the Olympics is over to take a look. But just speaking of the Olympics, uh, the swimming, um, uh, last week we talked about the two champions. We had uh, a Lily King. And uh, I think I forget her first name, but her last name is Jacoby. And Lily King was the was was the the favorite, the absolute. You know, again, uh, I said hands- Lily King had not been beaten yeah. in five years in that event. Yeah, he was one of the ones that Eric mentioned. She yeah. got beaten by and, Lydia and, Jacobs, and Lily King came in third. Lily King came in third, and and Jacoby, uh, the the seventeen year old high school senior, that is Jacoby, is a oh. high school senior from Alaska, where there are yeah. no pools. <laughs> and wins the race. And, and actually, we talked about her last week because she's the one with the slower turnover. Um, she yeah. has a turnover of one stroke per second. And King was well, 1.3, a chance to see that. Well, almost. It's Lily King, one second per stroke, and Lydia, 1.3 seconds per stroke. And apparently those are kind of the two outer bounds. Did I write that down wrong? That's what I wrote down last week. Those are the two kind of outer limits of uh, the stroke rate. And uh, our guest, Russell Mark, was talking about how it's remarkable that people with such different mechanics could swim so similarly. And Jacoby winning that race was one of the great moments that I've seen so far. Anyway, I agree with you. Kids. Shane. Can I uh, ask a question, not about swimming, even though it's like half of the Olympic medals. Um, I want to get back to this. I want to get back to this three on three basketball, which is one of these newer sports. Uh, and this is like maybe a specific kind of question for Eric, but anybody can weigh in is for three and three basketball, I mean, obviously some there's less people on the court. The rules are slightly different, et cetera. Does would I, I kind of noticed that, of course, the you know, there's no professional, no NBAers are on the men's roster, but several WNBA players are on the women's roster. So it, it gives me a question. How much of like five on five kind of basketball skill and talent translates to three on three? Or is it like different enough that you, the top athletes aren't really kind of overlapping? Good question. I think it's, I think it's a very different game. And again, I, let, let's be clear to our listeners. I don't want to start getting a lot of things that, by the way, notice I'm going to bring it in here. Kate. You can always email us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. The five on five game is so much different from the three on three game. And I can say as someone that's was only mediocrely athletic, but never saw a shot in basketball, he didn't like. 
Um, I always love the five on five game more than the three on three game. And you might say, why is that? As someone that's you know not particularly a great athlete, there's much more space on the court in a five on five game. On a three on three game, there's always someone close to you. It's harder to get open if you can't. If you're Eric, not, you're, Eric, you, I don't. You're not, I'm not following you. Why is there more space in five on five? Than because three? the court use the whole court. Because three on three is half three on three is a half court game. That's, okay, and so you almost always play, you almost always play one on one man on man defense in a three on three in a five in a five on five. There's a lot of more breakdowns. It's easier to get open. Plus, there's more open court basketball in a five on five game. So, someone that can shoot but can't get open that easily, like me, would rather play the five on five. I think game. you were just snowbird. I think you're one of those guys who just who didn't. You didn't go to the defensive side of the court. You just kind of hung out on the offensive side. Oh, no, no, no. Like de- you just call for the ball. I like the defensive side of the court. It didn't, didn't like me that much. But my point, Shane, is um, I'm not convinced. I'll tell you who I would like for a three-on-three game, even today. Give me someone like Rick Mahorn. You can't really? stop. He doesn't really? have to move much. You don't have to move that much. And let's see yeah, you get Rick Mahorn out from under the rim <laughs> in a three-on-three game. And, you know, it's he's going to do a lot of damage. And the other thing about a three-on-three game is you better get ready for some heavy physical punishment because think about it, the number of people that are near you, it's not that easy to get yourself open in a three-on-three game. As a matter of fact, the secret to many people, you have two types of players in a three-on-three game, guys that can get really close to the hoop or guys that once the rebound comes off, you have to dribble it past the three-point line and shoot guys that can get out quick and shoot fast. Those are the two types you see. It's funny that you say that because I watched a little three-on-three and just a little bit of, you know, density mathematics would suggest that outside sort of the the breakaway uh, on the, you know, on the turnover uh, where there's obviously the whole court and things are really spread out in five-on-five, wouldn't there be more crowding in five by five and therefore less opportunity in, in, to get exactly open? In the fast court game, I'm saying, Adi, some of us, that's yeah. the way we scored. We would get, you know, we'd, we'd shoot. Sure, sure. But these are professionals because I watched them three on three and it looked like that there was more unguarded shots taken. And maybe that was just bad anecdotes or I don't know how to watch. But are, are there, it seems that their percentage, their shot success percentage um, seem to be higher. Uh, is that a number that anyone knows the answer to? That's a great question. We, we can not only look at that number, but we can look, you know, motion tracking data. And it's nice that we have a visitor in our fourth segment today that's not talking about necessarily going to talk about that type, but motion tracking data should answer that question, Adi. We should know. Um, and it's a good question. So, but, fellas, before we head out of this quarter and on the point of basketball, the men's team dropped a game to France. France, oh, all teams. So what's the assessment currently of the U.S. men's basketball team? I, well, you've heard a lot of things. I mean, first of all, let's also remember we also lost a couple of games in the warm-ups to the Olympics right. as well. Yes, of course. So I think we've won one and lost three so far. Um, the U.S. team is not particularly great. Um, they haven't played together a lot. They're playing one-on-one basketball. And a lot of people now, of course, that they're losing, they're complaining that um, Greg Popovich, who's the coach, has put in the San Antonio structured style and guys aren't allowed to play the freewheeling style that they want. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't I don't know why the U.S. is still the favorite. I don't know why. There's no evidence to suggest they should be the favorite right now in the Olympics, but they are. They're still the betting favorite. I think they're at minus 250. If I could, I'm taking the other side. I'm taking the field. Okay. In the final 30 seconds or so, give us something you're looking forward to in the next week. Between now and the next show, what Olympic event do you most have your eye on? 
whether Luka Doncic continues to score almost 50 points per game like he did uh, in the la- in, in, in Slovenia's first game. Yeah, once swimming's done, I will translate to basketball very quickly because there'll be a little gap to track and field, but I always have my eye on tennis, and there's lots to talk about, which I'm sure we will in the next segment. Well, I'm very curious to see the, the track and field, but I want to see how the swimming ends up. Last year, the American men won half the gold medals. I don't think they're on track to even a quarter. We'll see how that kind of t- shakes out. All right. That reminds me that 538's got a forecast, a, a country metal forecast model up there. Of course they do. So if, if you're into that kind of thing, it is available. All right, guys, that has been one half. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open line segment. Got the whole crew in here. Shane Jensen, City Center, Philadelphia. Eric Bradlow out on the main line. Audie Weiner on the main line. Cade Massey in Austin, Texas. We talked Olympics in the last quarter. We've got a little bit more Olympics to hit. Eric, I know you want to talk about tennis. What can you tell us about Olympic tennis? Just quickly, we're seeing the same thing we've been seeing all year. So on the men's side, number one seed, Novak Djokovic. Still in. Number two seed, Daniel Medvedev. Still in. Number three seed, Stefano Tsitsipas. Still in. I think the four seed might be out, but we still have, no, Zverev, the four seed, still in. So on the men's side, it's not going entirely to chalk, but all the top heavyweights are still in. Let's go on the women's side. Ash Barty, number one in the world. Out. Naomi Osaka, number two. Out. I'm not sure who number three is. Out. Number four, right now, of the eight quarterfinalists, Three are unseated. Wow. And the four seed is left. The seven seed is left. And then it's a bunch of like 13, 15. The same thing is happening again in women's tennis. There's just massive uncertainty going on in women's tennis. And so um, I think the only thing I'm looking forward to on the men's side, I'm pretty sure I know how they've been playing. I'm pretty sure the men's is going to be best of three the whole way through. That's my glimmer of hope that you could see some upset. Because remember, Djokovic was down two sets to love in the French to Tsitsipas. You can beat, maybe you can beat Djokovic in one set and get him nervous, but you're not beating him in five. So I think the Olympics, he has less chance to win the Olympics than he does the, the U.S. Open because best of three, you at least have a shot. Great point, great point. Eric, what, what would be your take on why the women's and men's have gone so differently lately? I mean, it, there, it seems like there was a time when that might not have been the case when Serena was at the top of the game. Right. be quite predictable. So what is it, especially the contrast across the two sides, makes it especially an interesting question, I'd say. Well, one outside, thing. Outside, yeah, go ahead. Can I ask okay. a follow Just a quick, outside of Serena, was it still pretty chalky? Right. Or was, I mean, I mean, because one answer Fair. could just be that, you know, there isn't that like, you know, generational kind of number one that is always there but no i think i think you've hit it on the head i think there are a bunch of great champions on the women's side ash barty's a great champion naomi Naomi osaka is a great champion now in the women's game simona halep although she's not at the olympics she's a great champion uh there's multiple petra kvitova uh gabrina muguruza these are all multiple time major winners and none of them i mean serena's got 23 majors none of these people i mentioned shane 
maybe Osaka gets there. In my view, we'll get above five or six majors. Maybe their upper bound is where Venus Williams end up, which is still a tremendous career, seven majors. There's, there's no generational talent, except in my view, potentially Osaka right now. I think she's a generational talent. And if, she, and if her health stays good, and I say health, physical health, mental health, well-being, she's someone that, to me that can reach 10 plus majors. I don't see any of these others being able to get there. Well, you're suggesting one easy way to look at this, which is the ELO ratings. Five thirty has these things, and we can see the distribution of those. And and we would, and the most parsimonious explanation is that there's just closer grouping on the women's side than there is in, in the men's right now. Guys, one other objectively notable event in the sports world: the Bucks took care of business with the Suns last week. The night we recorded later that evening. They won their first title in 50 years. Was it since 1970? Exactly 50. Kareem, exactly 1971. 50. And just to round out that number, Giannis went for 50 points. So it's been a week, but we want to honor that. Of course, any thoughts coming out of the NBA season? He dominated both sides of the court. Uh, went, I think the number is 15 of 17 from the free throw line. As he said, he made him when it mattered. Um, I would put this up into one of the top five NBA finals game I've ever seen. I think individual performance, right? Individual performance in an NBA finals game. I put this in the top, but again, I don't want to compare this to whether it was Wilt Chamberlain, but I didn't see that. I'm saying that I've seen live. This was one of the top five NBA finals games that I've ever seen. LeBron would have one in there. Shaq would have one in there. Uh, Kobe would have one in there, but this is up there. This is up there. Paul Pierce, uh, against the Lakers, I would consider one of the greats. But this is as good as you can get. I mean, he was great on every dimension. It was it was impressive. He's the two-time MVP. That was the MVP of the league playing in that game. Do people think he's going to stay with that franchise? Will he buck the trend? Lately? He just signed a, what, five, six-year, $200 million contract. So he's definitely staying. No, no, no. He could have left a year ago, and he just signed the big mega deal. So he's, yeah, he's a Milwaukee buck. Yeah, I don't want to say for the first opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, his, his his comments kind of after the game also sort of like he he, he kind of took time to sort of talk about how he, you know, you know, resisted the temptation to go join a super team. And he really liked the fact that they kind of built it, um, you know, from, you know, from within there, whether or not he ends up being part of a super team that they construct around him there is, is another question. Okay, he may end up on a super team, but he'll probably be in give, Milwaukee. But let's give John, John, Giannis the credit we gave LeBron all those years. He dragged a bunch of people. Let, I'm not saying they're not good players, but let's look who's on that Bucks team with him. You wouldn't call Chris Middleton a super, superstar in the NBA. You wouldn't call Drew Holiday a super, superstar in the NBA. You wouldn't call P.J. Tucker a super, superstar in the NBA. All I'm commenting is, let's not make it like the Bucks had the big three or four. No, like that's the, right. He, I mean, you've got they to They truly did it without kind of constructing a super team. Um, right. and, and maybe that kind of, you know, I, as somebody who, you know, maybe – you know, as, as sort of like gotten a little turned off with this super team kind of construction over the last, like, say, decade or so um, in the NBA. It's kind of inspiring that hopefully other other franchises, you know, it's kind of a proof of principle that we don't need a super team kind of construction. I think the way. I think also, Shane, it's why also um, look, as you know, uh, the Bucks were a toe away. As Kevin Durant said, his size 18 feet toe uh, yep. from from them losing um, and. None of us would put the Bucs uh, against a healthy 
Nets team, none of us would put the Bucs as the yeah. favorite next year coming out of the East. If Harden's healthy, if uh, Durant's healthy, and if um, oh, uh, Irving's healthy, the Nets are the favorite over the Bucs. Come on. I want, I want to bring a little objective information to the rating of the surrounding cast because I remember being, I'm no judge of these things, but I remember being impressed with the team as a whole when they did take care of the, um, of the Nets. Uh, if you might, you might remember that our friend Seth Partnow did a piece for the athletic, the athletic at the beginning of the season where he put all the players into tears. It was this fun thing where he's like, I'm going to put every player in the NBA to tears. And this is how he says how NBA teams think about building their rosters. And if you look for where this is kind of out of sample forecasting, right? Cause this is preseason. Where does he put Middleton and holiday? They're both in, in tier three, a, which is in the same tier, for example, as Ben Simmons, Devin Booker, Draymond Green, um, Kimball Walker, Kyrie Irving. So it's, it's pretty high up there. It's not top two tiers. He has Chris Paul, Embiid, and two, Lillard, and two, Donkic. This funny. I don't, have fine. I don't have a problem with that. I agree with that. I think he's got a bunch of very good players with him. And, um, but this is the thing about the NBA. And this is why I thought the Bucs would win the series after it got to 2-2. And I'm not going to say momentum, guys, although I'm happy to because they did win four in a row, but I'm not, that's not it. You just needed Middleton to win you one game, which he did. You needed Drew Holiday to win you one game, which he did. And Giannis took care of the rest. That's the thing. You don't need Middleton to be Michael Jordan every game. You don't even need him to be Chris Paul. You just need Middleton to be Middleton for one game and let Giannis take care of the rest. And that's what happened. So I'm very proud. I'm happy for the Bucs. And I agree with Shane. I'm happy it wasn't a super team. Well, um, from super team to super conferences, the biggest news as far as <laughs> sports lately. What a transition! That's 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 worth it. That's worth. What, what's a radio award? What is not an Emmy? It's got to be. You should. That's a, that was tremendous. Radio Emmys. The radio. Radio Emmys. Emmy. So you you might have missed it, but the steps are being taken. The the University of Texas and University of Oklahoma petitioned for admission to the SEC today after letting. This is Tuesday afternoon after letting the Big 12 know yesterday that they were not going to renew the grant of rights when they, the media rights when they come up in 2025. So these are just the formal steps. The SEC is expected to meet on Friday and they're expected to admit them. And then there will be a negotiation between these teams and the Big 12 on how quickly they transition out. Many people expect them to play this, this season in the Big 12 and no more. The longest they would go would be through the 2025 season, which is how long the grant of rights, but nobody really expects that to happen. So it's going to depend on what kind of settlement they can negotiate or whether the Big 12 kind of falls apart as all the remaining schools kind of fend for themselves. So we'll see how that plays out. But setting aside the details, I'm very curious y'all's reactions to this news, monster news that came out midweek last week. Well, if the Big 12 does fall apart, and we're left with four power conferences that does make kind of the math of like playoff, you know, kind of, you know, like how we might structure uh, the current playoffs or expanded playoffs a little bit easier. Right. I mean, in the sense that like, if we were down to four power conferences and we had like say an 18 playoff, or even we stick with the 14 playoff, then it's just basically the winner of those conferences. And that's that 
less controversial than the current sort of like it, it reduces the kind of decision making around that final four. Right. Well, it, it's it's too neat, though, because the conferences are so unequal. There's no way that that would be a stable. I don't think it's an equilibrium because the Pac-12 conference winner is many years, at least in recent past, and especially with the addition of UT and OU, going to be weaker than the third, fourth team in the SEC. Oh, yeah, but, but, that, but that's a more kind of conventional but, week, week, you know, controversy, like, you know, the fact that an AFC South team at like seven and nine makes the playoffs where like a 10 and five team in another like division does. I, I think what you got to look for is what is equilibrium? Because I don't I, you, the four conference with one much weaker than one much stronger than the others. I just don't think we're at equilibrium at that point. And so it feels like I don't know that anybody knows where we're going, but a lot of folks sense that. We're, we're going into new territory and, and who knows what it's going to look like. But you, I, I think you got to look for what's equilibrium and the, the four, four conferences, I don't think is going to get you there. Adi. So I, I, what I'm really curious about is how much, uh, what's sort of pushing this to happen? Is it the likeness and the money that can be made? Is it thinking that a team, we talked about this last week, if a team produces more television coverage than another team, more international, national uh, celebrity Will that be a big recruiting tool? And therefore, you're going to want the, to be able to recruit by getting being more public. That will drive the, the one conference to be just much better. So that will just become the, the, mini, the mini majors, if you will, maybe the minors or the, the, the college conference that gets the most celebrity status for its players. And, the, and they're going to get the best players. And that's going to be a real, real uh, separation between the conferences. Yeah, Adi, I think that's a what you've described is a big part of the dynamic. You and I know from having crunched some recruiting numbers how much more concentrated the talent has become in the Southeast Conference relative to other conferences, and especially the, just in general, the talent around the top teams has increasingly concentrated, but, primarily because of the geographic reach. So recruiting has changed, and the top players from around the country concentrate increasingly on the top teams. And I think at some level what we're seeing is – is the same kind of transition where teams are going to concentrate with other top teams because of the economic returns to doing so. So let me, let me ask a question just from a different perspective, but on this topic, let's imagine UT's only goal were to maximize its chances to make the college football playoffs. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying if it was, this seems like the wrong move to me, right? Well, again, go to equilibrium. The, the, if you said Texas was going to stay in this current state, then maybe so, because they've at least historically had a pretty, well, they haven't won any damn big 12 championships. And so even that hasn't been a very well given, but don't they have a better chance to win a big 12 championship than the distance they are potentially away from being good enough in the sec to make one of the playoff spots. Two, two factors. One, the change in the playoff system. So this is kind of the remarkable thing because Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, was on the four-person committee that built this 12-team proposal. If you remember when the 12-team proposal came out, everybody was surprised because everyone thought it'd be eight and it goes to 12. It's still a proposal though, right? It's a proposal. And in fact, this might squirrel everything. But the main reason it went from eight to 12 was because the SEC said, hey, as long as we're going to expand to eight, eight doesn't help us. It's just going to include everybody. We're already kind of dominating out. And we're gonna, we only get helped if we go to 12 because now we can include everybody and include more of us. And so is this SEC move, but that opens the doors, Eric, to a Texas or an Oklahoma coming over there 
and coming in as the third or fourth best. I, I agree. I, I'm sorry. I was referring under the four system. If you're going to 12, yes. I think Texas has as good a chance as maybe better of being the third team in the SEC in than, the, than winning the Big 12 convincingly enough that they get a slot. But here's the other element that's that we're, it's not it's not stable that that recruiting has become a increasingly difficult thing for Texas against SEC teams, and it's what Adi was talking about. The best players increasingly want to go to the SEC, and and Texas has been losing battles against LSU, Alabama, Ohio State has some of the same cachet, by the way. So let's not short them too much. But Texas is losing. I mean, historically, it's been top ten. And they've kind of flipped positions with Texas A&M over the last 10 years. As A&M has that SEC cachet, Texas doesn't have it. They've lost their recruiting advantage. And long-term, that's going to be a real liability on the football field. So purely from a competitive perspective, you you don't want to be, if you fancy yourself one of the blue bloods, you don't want to be outside the super conference. And right now, Texas and Oklahoma, a couple of blue buds are distinctly outside the super conference and the gap is widening every, every year. Yeah. I was just concerned that there might also be a finite supply of really good talent. And so Texas moving to the sec is still not going to get them more talent comparatively than Alabama or, you know, uh, LSU or, you know, whether it's Clemson, like, is it going to help enough to, but either way, I agree with you. It's not an obvious thing, even if their goal is just to maximize making the playoffs, but there's lots of other goals. Well, I mean, I can tell you that they're in like big battles for five-star defensive backs right now, one against Texas A&M head to head. It's Texas or A&M. This guy's going to decide Bryce Anderson or head to head against Alabama for Denver Harris, two of the top defensive back recruits in the country. And it's head to head against SEC teams. And that is a real liability that Texas is going to host, you know, Kansas state and Texas tech while Alabama is going to be playing Auburn and Georgia. And that's just reality. And every year in the last 10, it's become more and more that way, partly because SEC, because ESPN has done such a great job of highlighting the SEC. And so there's been this, it's been this accelerating self-fulfilling thing where Alabama does great SEC gets stronger. And of course, now the players can get paid. We know there's another objective function too. Well, that's an interesting wrinkle because one of the reservations for schools who don't like playing by dirty recruiting rules, what historically has been dirty, it was a real liability to compete against the SEC on in recruiting. If you're holding yourself to a higher standard, you don't have the bag men that right. our buddy that Stephen Godfrey has written about in the SEC. The lure is true that there's just there's just recruiting practices in the sec that some schools won't do now texas isn't perfectly clean we like to say we are i'm sure we're not but the nil changes that because it puts everything above Good point and yep. now basically texas and oklahoma who've mostly refrained from that stuff in recent decades at least at least in terms of volume it's not not the same as sec they can they, they're basically level playing field and in fact Texas may get real organized and start putting a lot of money out there. So from a competitive perspective, it feels like the NIL has allowed Texas to step in and go toe-to-toe in the SEC without being disadvantaged because of some. So do you think in the long run, the equilibrium is end up being two or three super conferences? Yeah. One, two, three. Um, there's this constant, there's a winner take all economy here. And so yep. there's real, economies to the best being with the best. And I'm not saying it's great for the sport. I'm not saying it's even what I prefer, but it's definitely 
I mean, the horse is out of the barn. And if you, if you want to be at the top in this sport, and there are a handful of institutions around the country that do, they're going to have to get with each other. They're going to get left behind. What's SC going to do? What is SC going to do? This, this is a bad moment in their history, and they're over there on the West Coast. How are they? They are blue as blue bloods get. How are they going to get a part of this? It's not clear to me yet, but what the, the final steps, whenever they are, are going to involve the SCs of the world in some way. It's going to be interesting to see. All right, guys, that has been three quarters. We still have a quarter to go. We've got a terrific conversation in the next quarter with Chris Hess. We, we like to talk technology every now and then, cutting-edge technology, sports science, and we've got a man who's been working with quarterbacks and motion tracking data. Good fun, good conversation with Chris Hess coming up. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, the quarter that's become our interview tradition. Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen here with Caden Massey. We are delighted to welcome to the show for the first time, Chris Hess. Chris is the founder owner of an organization called Biometric. We're going to find out more about it. It is, I think, the almost inevitable uh, destination of motion tracking. It's, it's finally landed at a more complicated place than hitting a baseball. It's finally landed with quarterbacks. And it's not all that Chris does, but it is something that he does. Chris, delighted to have the chance to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the opportunity. It's an honor to join you guys. Absolutely. We, uh, we saw you. You came to our attention via Bruce Feldman's recent article on The Athletic. Bruce is a, an occasional guest over the years here and a, a favorite follow of ours. And he's always turning over interesting stones in the world of college football. And that was an especially interesting article focusing on your work with Jordan Palmer and the quarterback summit that he has and it's the big name quarterbacks that he's got out there. And the kind of the lead on the article is like, well, Maybe, uh, maybe this is what gets credit for Josh Allen's surprising performance in the NFL. Because prior to Josh Allen, that one of the only things we thought we knew about quarterback, how quarterback performance translated from college to pro was that they're no more accurate in pro than they are college. That's kind of an upper limit. And maybe that's the only thing we actually think that goes through that. But it turns out Josh Allen has become more accurate in terms of completion percentage anyway. So, so, so we're curious, Chris, we're curious. Also, we've been doing the show for seven and a half years. We follow technology and sports science across all sports, and we've seen motion tracking blow up in various corners. And we've always wondered, like, okay, where, where's it, when's it going to get its way in to football? Because quarterback is such the kind of, you know, most important position in sports. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Biometric. What is Biometric, and how did you get involved with it? So basically, it's, it's a company that I started, right? We assess and analyze functional and sport-specific movements for elite athletes just to help them find their way to become their best. You know, you opened up by talking about Josh and his transformation. First, all the credit always goes to the athlete because I just measure and identify things. They have to go through all the uncomfortable phases of addressing those changes or doing something with the information you give them because there's a lot of athletes you'll have to run across that you can give them that information and they don't, uh, they can't always act upon it or, right. or do things with it. So how did you transition from, you were, you were an offensive lineman in the, at Kansas State in some of those early Snyder teams in the mid-90s. 
what was your path from playing college football to working with this kind of technology? So it was a long path. I took a 20-year detour from being a collegiate athlete. An athlete, I say, roundly. I was a scout team offensive lineman, did some long snapping to get on the field. I've got all the jerseys and some of the bull rings, but I was not one of the front line guys. I was 6'2", 290, right? Versus all those, the starting line was, you know, 6'6", 315, of right. these, these movers. So yeah, I helped, I tried to help the defense get better and prepare for that week. And then, like I said, a little bit of long snapping on the side, mm-hmm. but I went into a 20 year corporate career, primarily in marketing and product development, typically always with sports related companies. So I worked for Callaway golf. The last 10 years I was with a company or 10 years before I started this with a company called Shimano. If you're a cyclist sure. or into fishing, you'll recognize Shimano. If you're not, you probably have never heard of them. Um, but after I got done with the corporate life, had enough of that or my fill in that area, I wanted to start my own company, but working with athletes again. And one of the things I kept noticing was there was this gap, right? Coaches and, um, were out of time and out of resources in a lot of sense. And the athletes were looking for more objective feedback on these things. And so there seemed to be this gap between this information. So there was a lot of evolution and changes that went into it. But ultimately I found that the 3d motion capture and providing objective measurement of the athlete allowed the coach to make a better diagnosis and decision what to do and gave the athlete information they needed to get better. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of where biometrics started. So what, what about the transition from where motion tracking began to, to, to the football field? And, and you, you mentioned Callaway. I think of golf as the origin. I'm sure it, something predates it, but we were, you know, um, putting little sensors on golfers years ago yes. before everybody else kind of jumped on it. And then obviously baseball has made great headway with it for both pitchers and, um, and, and position players at the plate. So what, what about getting out of the football field? What, tell, tell us about your thinking there and how, you, and how you made that bridge. Well, I think a big part of getting it out on the football field was the, the pushing to the forefront now and the growth of markerless. So what we saw used to see in golf and originally in baseball was – Place the reflective dots all over everyone. Almost anyone listening has seen that in some form or another. They look like little little balls that are placed all over them. And then infrared light would show off those reflective markers to show. Well, placing those markers on a, on a football athlete with as much dynamic movement and things they need to do, it's difficult. This is with pitchers to baseball. Um, but baseball, you're paying a pitcher $10 million, so a non-contact injury will be there. So let me kind of steer back on markerless motion capture again, allows us to go out on the field with the quarterback and be able to do it more easily without taking that time. And I think some of the reason it was later to football was most of the injuries in football aren't related to mechanics. They're related to getting hit versus baseball, your injury to your pitcher. A lot of it's related to mechanics, golf, Um, performance uh, lacking can re- be related to mechanics. I think there's a connection there, but that's why football didn't adopt it earlier. There wasn't the necessity from injury. Now these guys are good enough at training. Now they're looking to optimize their performance mm-hmm. and their mechanics and, and be able to study that and become more efficient. Now the motion capture comes into helping. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, let me ask you, is there heterogeneity in optimal motion? Like if I have, if I'm a quarterback and I have a certain body type and let's call it maybe you'll dispute this natural throwing motion and you're a quarterback and you have a natural throwing motion. Is there an optimal motion for you that could be different than me or no, everyone's pretty much got the same optimal motion. No, if this has taught me anything, it's that they're different. They're very, I went in, I came into it thinking that it was going to be okay. We're going to get all these, all this data and it's going to kind of line up and there's going to be these tens and and trends and things. It is all over the place of how these guys do it. 
Um, and I've done several hundred quarterbacks up to this point, and every one of them does it a little different because even though you may have two quarterbacks that let's say Josh, right? Josh Allen, six, five, two forty five. I can put another quarterback of similar height and weight next to him, but the odds are they're not going to have the same mobility, right? At the base level, maybe how much they can separate their pelvis from their torso is different or their ankle flexion is different or they're, when they're explosive moment, their rate of force development is different. That's the part about that's so amazing about Josh. He's such an amazing athlete and so explosive for his size. It's part of what makes him unique versus someone else doesn't have those same numbers. So, but what I really, what started as, yeah, let's try and help them as a group turns into, this is highly individualized. Now we get to know your movement patterns, how you move, how you efficiently, and then let's optimize that for you. To help so you how do, get but Chris, how does that, how does that work? If, if anybody can, if you can throw a ball in so many different ways, how do you know what to tell them to do? Like, what is it you're, how do you know what direction to pull them or what to change? And what, what are you optimizing for? If, if anybody, anybody's, if everybody does it differently. Optimizing for, I would say efficiency, meaning there's, there are, while there's different ways of doing it, there is an efficient way of transferring energy from the ground up through your body and out through your hand as you throw the ball. Okay. Meaning that, right. So we want to see there's a, the first thing we look at is sequencing, right? What, what moves first? So when a quarterback kind of think of it, they go into a stride, their front, their stride foot plants. So if it's a right-handed quarterback, their left leg strides out, left foot plants. First thing that should fire should be that pelvis, right? It should start rotating. And then as that pelvis is reaching its peak velocity, now they're going to fire that torso and it's going to start rotating. That torso should hang back until that front foot is in the ground. But once that torso starts to rotate, now the pelvis slows down because, you know, and um, true people who know anatomy much better than me will, will call me out, but right. All those core muscles and everything stretching across your abdominals connect to your, your pelvic bones and can help decelerate the pelvis. Torso accelerates. Now as the torso starts to accelerate, reaches peak. Now here comes the elbow extension and then finally internal shoulder rotation. So there's a one, two, three, four sequence moving up the body of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, if that's mm -hmm. out of order, then we'll start to see inefficiencies in rotational velocities. So we use a lot of angular um, momentum degrees per second. So we all understand linear velocity, right? Which is meters per second or miles per hour that we know in our car. In rotational mm -hmm. athletes, we're measuring degrees per second, which is angular velocity. It's just speed around a circle because right? ah. they're rotating. So we can see how fast is the pelvis rotating? How fast is that torso rotating? How fast is that elbow extension rotating? And then how fast is that internal shoulder rotation? And there does kind of come to be, even though the styles are completely different, there is kind of a little bit of a formula or ratios that are similar. So it's almost a doubling as you move up. So if the, if the pelvis is moving at 400 degrees per second in rotation, an efficient energy transfer of the torso is typically going to be around seven or 800 degrees per second. It's going to almost double. Right. And then coming out through the elbow, that's going to go up to about 1,600 degrees per second, double oh, wow. again. And then depending on the type of throw they do, if it's a drive ball, layer ball, deep ball, they'll be somewhere around 3,500 to 4,500 degrees per second on the internal shoulder rotation just after release of the ball. Because, right, a football weighs a pound, and the minute you let go of it, that arm hits its max acceleration right after letting go. So if we see that transfer happening, that that energy is growing as it coming up to their body, that's kind of how we judge and can see efficiency. Okay. A lot of the quarterbacks, when they first get in there, if they tend to be arm throwers, right, that are generating their power from their arm, the pelvis and torso are going to time at the same time and same speed, and you get this big spike in the internal shoulder rotation. So yeah, you see right. the ratios get way off. So I, was, that, that, I think that answers my next question, because as you're talking about this, it strikes me that 
the sports that had motion tracking at this level before football mostly focused on rotational athletes as well. So golf, yes. pitching, batting. And I reckon they've built some infrastructure that you kind of get to advance, right? You, they've learned some things about how to do this with rotational athletes that you must now be building on. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. So like the work of um, ASMI in Birmingham, uh, uh, Dr. Glenn Fleissig that he's done down there at the Andrews Institute, they've done so much pioneering on baseball pitching that works for rotational athletes. Even though it's a athlete or a pitcher coming off a mound, a lot of it transfers over to quarterbacking. Also um, what TPI has done down in with Greg Rose in uh, San Diego, of, okay. of leading the way in golf. Again, mm-hmm. there's so many similarities and then kind of bridging it from baseball into quarterbacking. I think one of the first people to do it was Tom house. Um, and I don't right. know if you've heard of, of Tom or not Tom famous working with breeze and drew, um, right. drew breeze and Tom Brady and stuff um, that he brought a lot of it over. So yes, there are similarities that crossovers that we can learn from other rotational athletes and then just bringing that in and you know, being able to seek what's unique in quarterbacks. Chris, can you tell us what you think the technology you're using brings beyond what a really good hands-on quarterback specialist was doing without your machine? What's the advantage? I think it confirms a lot of what they see. So a lot of quarterback coaches and people that have seen millions of throws, they can see things with their eye. And typically, I either just, it validates it, but it also puts a number to it. Because what the quarterback coach, while they can see something, they can't always see if it's changing or progressing as they're trying to you know, measure it right. or they're trying to change it. They mm-hmm. see it, that, that dysfunction and they're like, okay, that doesn't look right. But then that has to go into this trial and error phase of seeing if it's changing or are they responding to it. Basically, what I bring to that is identifying it, right? So the coach go, okay, yeah, I was seeing that. So let's use a, a specific um, example. So pelvic to torso separation. A lot of athletes will talk about like I talked about that the pelvis goes first, right? In the rotation, we typically want to see, let's say 35 degrees of separation between the pelvis and torso when that stride foot is is starting to plant, right? To get that separation between the two, to start to kind of pull the bow back, Mm -hmm. build the energy. So a coach may see that the kind of their torso and their pelvis are turning at the same time. They don't know what Mm -hmm. distance, what difference that is, but they'll try and attack it. Well, I can put a number to it, meaning Mm -hmm. that, okay, this quarterback's only getting four degrees, and our target may be 35 initially. And then the coach can work and do some new tweaking to their mechanics and techniques. And we can keep measuring over time to see, are they responding to it? If so, perfect. If not, they need to change their approach, mm-hmm. right? To try and get the athlete to respond. Chris, just one last follow-up. And these, I'm, trying, I'm holding off my guys for a second, but one follow-up on how, how readily are these guys able to build kind of an internal instrument for measuring these things with this kind of feedback you're telling them well that was 35 it's good that was only 17 you need to kind of bring it out a little earlier or you know do do they have the ability to begin because you don't want them to be reliant on your machinery right they have to learn how to feel this and sense this and adjust this themselves is that part of the process how adept are they at that part yeah it it depends on the athlete there's some athletes i will not even mention numbers right where i'll even just it's just going to be video for them so there's three ways we analyze the data one is video that always works really well with the athlete and even with the coaches, because that's what they're used to looking at. Yeah. Right. Right. There's, there's the number. So like a min and max, like that will give you a number. So at max separation, here's the number, whatever that is, 10 degrees, okay. 30 degrees. Okay. But then what I use for myself a lot in analyzing is a graphical representation of that, which shows me what degrees or what speed is going on throughout the entire movement over time. 
um, of it. We're, and I'll overlay a bunch of those because it's never one thing, right? The body's a chain. It's all connected. Yep. So different things have to happen with it. So yeah, for the athlete, a lot of times it's some of them just get in there, throw, and then I meet with their coaches and their clinicians. And we talk about what they need to tweak and the, that position coach. So like Jordan, when I'm working with one of his quarterbacks, Jordan is the one that works with them on creating the feel Yeah. Okay. to get to be able to get to the number. Now there's some of the quarterbacks that like the numbers. And so they want to get into it and do it. Cool. Right. Totally happy to do it with them. There's other guys that are just like, Hey man, get me the feel of what right. I need. And what about that. those, you mentioned the graphics. What about those, those little stick men you see? So is that kind of a, it's a, it's a simplification of the video, but it's a more visual representation of the numbers. And it that's, kind of, a, that's an avatar we call that. So it's just laying and I've got a, the one you saw in Bruce's article is just this little stick figure avatar. We've got another one yeah. that looks like a skeleton meets a robot. Yeah. That just helps us as much. It shows us where the bone segments are, where the joints are and how it's tracking. Um, okay. for accuracy. That's as much of feedback to me, but it's also kind of a cool way to show the athlete. Sometimes you can pull them out of there and just put up the avatar right. so they can see the individual segments when they're moving and how they're moving and then lay it back over them. Yeah, so it's yeah, just yeah. another way to look at it visually. And that's okay. always the cool wow factor when they first step in. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Avatar. Chris, when, when, you, when you have these, uh, kind of acknowledging what you said earlier about how everybody has a different avatar, every one of these athletes there's, has their own kind of motion, as a function of their size and everything like that. How do you come up with the targets for what they should be doing? Like, is it kind of trying to compare to athletes of a similar, with a similar avatar, with a similar size and kind of proportion, or is it more based on kind of kinesiology theory or something like that? Yeah, so the, the avatar side of it that goes over top of them, there's an initial scale of, there's some AI built into the software that's like, okay, here's what a general human body looks like right? So it, it lays this initial skeleton on them. And then they go through a range of just functional. It takes like 15 seconds for them to do some lunges, some like jumping jack movements. And now the, the software is reading where all their body segments are and moving. And then it automatically scales to what they are. So if, if the initial avatar will always look the same going on them, but after doing those scaling movements, if I'm a long torso, short femured athlete, boom, it'll pop into that of, of the joint segments and everything. Mm -hmm. So it, it measures it more accurately on, uh, on those side of things. So yeah, it, it customizes to each athlete. And then I think you're kind of asking of, well, but yeah, I, I guess I'm asking once you actually kind of have a good idea of that particular athlete's motion, how do you kind of say, Oh, well, you know, and you've quantified, how do you say, Oh, well, you're 20% off the target. Where does, where does the target they're going for coming from? Given that like every athlete has a different motion, right. like how do you know what you're kind of shooting for? What, what, why, where you want to get them to? Yeah. So that's where we really start looking at those efficiencies. So those angular velocity rotation ratios that I start looking at because, or that we start looking at um, overall being able to do it because when we see those happening efficiently, you know, so when we see that there's a good transfer energy from the pelvis up through the torso and out through the arm and through the hand and the ball, and that matches up with what we're seeing from the projectile when we're tracking the ball using track man and those type of things, that's where we're optimizing for that athlete. And they'll get in a range. Like most of the guys, when they had left here that had been working with us or working with Jordan and us for a couple of years, um, they leave in great shape. You know, right now their bodies are in good, a good place. They're kind of all throwing efficiently right now. Now they're going to start to go into the season and the camp, they'll be good, but then they're going to start getting hit. You get those little nicks and dings and stuff. And there'll be some, not regression, but some things they'll have to compensate around as they, as they get kind of banged up and bruised up throughout the season. Mm -hmm. So it's just working with them throughout time to get back to here's what you were at your efficiency. So some of it is tracking and giving them data of 
here's where you're at. You're most efficient. Let's be targeting that. That's when they're young. Now the fun part will be, I've only been doing this with them for three years as they get into year seven, eight, nine, ten, and they age, what needs to change based upon a 32 year old NFL body versus a 23 year old NFL body. But Chris, it sounds to me like you, there's not a recipe. There's not an optimal ratio for everything. There's probably a zillion interactions between these things. So you are both the engineer with this precise machine, but also an artist, you know, hands-on coach and making sense of those, tweaking them for different athletes, still kind of figuring it out because people haven't had these numbers for decades. So we don't know the range of possible optimal ratios, right? So there's a real, it sounds to me, the more you talk about this, that it is very much this mix of art and science, even in your position, the owner of the technology. I just yeah. want to say for the record, for the Wart Moneyball, I've had my hand raised and that was the question I was going to ask. So just for all of our <laughs> listeners out there, when Chris answers, this is Cade Massey's question and Eric Bradlow's. Now, Chris, please answer. Yeah, it's attribution it's, is very important. in that. Very, community. very important. There's absolutely some art um, involved of, of interpreting it. And it's not art of what anything I'm doing. Again, I'm just a guy, a person measuring. It's for the athlete because one of the things we get into after you, you know, we need to lay down a baseline of measurements initially. So there's no uh, whole lot of really deep interaction up front. Maybe we'll get into 10, 12 to 15 assessments where it's just going through it. But after we get through our 15th or so, and we start getting you know more and more detailed, now we're going to start doing patterning of the quarterbacks feeding back to me. Did the ball do what they wanted it to do? Uh-huh. Right. So Josh is in there throwing good, good, good. Nope. Bad. And I'm marking these because I'm starting to get to where when think when the ball is doing what you wanted it to, here were your mechanics when you were in control, when it didn't do what you wanted to do and it fell off, here's what happened. Yep. Right. Because that, that's the kind of the art side of what works for them. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on that's interesting. You're taking, you're kind of taking, you're using their subjective report as the DV. Right. And it's really interesting. I, Eric, Eric Bradlow, please. What do you got here, buddy? No, no. I, I was going to ask Chris, um, how do you know that what you're doing in terms of mechanics, you know, they always say, um, how do you know that it's going to translate to the actual field when the real game starts? You know, my story is that as, you know, as a semi mediocre college basketball player, we would always put a guy out there that looked great in practice, but we knew he couldn't shoot once the game starts. So how do we know that, you know, Josh Allen's not going to have great mechanics. The ball's going to leave his hand perfectly as long as he's doing drills with biometrics. But the minute there's a, seven 300 pound guys running after him, all of a sudden the mechanics are going to go absolutely haywire. So how do you guys think about the translation from I'll call it the test environment to the real environment? Yeah, the test environment. And, and I use this, this is a very general term. I don't have the actual data on it. I should be more responsible and have it, but I typically will. And I'm starting with a quarterback and, and a coach talk to them that less than 50% of the throws in the NFL, I don't know college as well, are what you'd call, in a traditional pocket where everything goes as well and is on time, mm-hmm. right? So when, when that's happening, right, everything should be in sequence. And that's when you want those proper throwing mechanics. The other plus 50% of the time when there's a 290-pound defensive lineman breathing down your neck, you just got to be an athlete and get it out. So it's really kind of when, when you're in control and in control of the situation, you just want to make sure you're as accurate. You can hit those throws and do that every time. And they're not thinking about their mechanics when they're playing ever, right? This is all supposed to be motor programmed in from the off season. Some quarterbacks will set aside times during the season, during the week, maybe on a Tuesday or a Wednesday where they'll work a little mechanics just to stay sharp. But then the rest of it, right? Mechanics is such a small part of quarterbacking. 
you have to be able to do it, but you have to also be able to read what's happening on the field. What's how's this defense trying to deceive me? What do we want to do? Chris, I could follow up on that. My impression, at least as of a couple of years ago, if you were using college data to forecast professional performance with quarterbacks, one of the first kind of surprising results that came out was that you wanted clean pocket data. That was actually more important. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear your take on why that would be. Given what you just described, why would it be that that would be more diagnostic? Because you might think, well, you, anybody can throw in a clean pocket, so that's not going to tell you anything. We want to know a guy under stress. But actually, the data, at least as of a few years ago, strikingly said, no, the more diagnostic was how a quarterback did in a clean pocket. I think, it, and this is just my hypothesis, it just it lessens the variables. There's way more variables when they have to roll out and they're escaping and everything that's happening and going on. How are their receivers reacting to that and moving okay. and doing things? Okay, interesting. So I think that's what I would, would come to mind right away. Chris, um, you know, kind of talking about how, you know, mechanics is only one aspect of, of kind of quarterbacking. You mentioned sort of like, you know, their on-field decision-making going through their progressions uh, is, is also a very important part of their skill set. Tell me how science fiction this is that maybe we will have within the near future, like kind of tracking where we're actually doing even like eye tracking of quarterbacks and sort of seeing, you know, do, do you know, is the quarterback kind of seeing the open receiver or not? You know, are, are their head movements actually kind of going in the right direction? You know, are, are they actually like going through their progressions accurately and stuff like that? Is, is that is that sci-fi or is that particularly close to kind of realization right now? That's coming close to realization. That's happened. There's a gentleman by the name of Ryan Harrison. His dad, and I forget his dad's name. Now, shame on me for forgetting. Was kind of a pioneer of vision training in baseball. Worked with George Brett. Worked with Sean Casey. Um, so yeah, Ryan, based here in Southern California, but travels all over helping baseball. He worked with some of the draft quarterbacks um, this past year on teaching them how they see what they see. So yeah, with um, Ryan and his group and anybody out there, you can Google Ryan Harrison. He is brilliant at bringing, telling you how you see things, how you perceive them, and then being able to work with you to strengthen that, right? There's ways to actually improve and he'll tell you which eye dominant you are and how you see that, how you perceive depth, all these things that he can do. And his is very much, again, a mix of art and science of, uh, of what Ryan's able to do. So that it's absolutely here. And then there's companies trying to do those things with goggles and glasses and Right now, it's pretty much lab-based. Um, it's not out on the field yet where they can sit in the lab and they'll get them to follow a bunch of things on the, the screen and can track your eyes of what they're doing. So I imagine within a few years, we'll see it to where they'll throw on a set of what looks like sunglasses or have something mounted in the helmet and they'll be able to read of where the eyes are looking and what they're doing. We should just play a game, fellas, and ask Chris, what, what technology is beyond the frontier? What is next? But first, I want to go back a couple of years. What happened with the technology where the guys would come in and put the virtual reality goggles on? And they, this was going to be the big deal in quarterback training. Now they could get all these reps without being on the playing field. And it was very splashy at the time. And then I haven't heard much about it in recent years. Yeah, I, I, I don't know either what happened to it. I just know that the more that, and this even comes from an area that I'm more familiar with of biomechanics, because biomechanics have been around forever of measuring it using 3D motion capture, but most of it's been in a lab, typically university labs. Mm -hmm. and trying to get an athlete to perform and have it replicate what's happening on the field in that lab setting, it's just never the same mm -hmm. um, for it. So maybe as, as you know, virtual reality comes along, it'll, it, that'll come back. 
and everything. But right now, the, as much as we can have them do on the field, and again, that's what goes back to what I was talking about with marker list, we can do this on the field with them. We can even do it right. with them in pads if they want to. Just right. make it as realistic as possible um, for them to perform the way they need to perform. Interesting. Uh, it does sound like a real advantage from from what you've got going on. And it does sound very um, movie-like that you can just pop around. All of a sudden, beep, beep, the computer's got you and you've got your avatar ready to go. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about a player's coachability and how coachability varies across players. We, 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 this is a term that people think is important. We know it's important, but it's pretty vague. You've worked now, you said, with a couple hundred quarterbacks. You've probably seen pretty big differences in coachability, I'm guessing. It seems like it's really important, especially in these young quarterbacks, and especially as you have these new technologies. They have to be able to take it on board change, be open to feedback, persist through difficulties. How important a part of the process is that? And how variable is that in the population of quarterbacks you've worked with? It's widely variable. And part of it too, is not letting the information overwhelm them and eat them alive either, because it it can do that with it. So a big part of what I do when I start with anyone is it's personality matching, right? As far as not just what I do in high community, but are they into this, right? So a big piece Uh for what I do is they need to be engaged in it. Um, to want to know, but also, again, know when to compartmentalize it and, and put it away. So while it's always fun when everybody gets in the first time and they get the avatar on, they get so excited. Yeah. And then we go through the information and some of the things that they can improve. And then that's a little less exciting. And then when they have to go do the work and go through all the discomfort of trying to make a few of those changes, it gets even less exciting. And that's right. a lot of them drop out at that point. So it's, okay. it looks like it's for everyone but it's really not. It, it, it is a particular personality set that does this. And that's kind of a cool part that I get the opportunity to see that I kind of judge beyond mechanics of a quarterback. Right. When I give them this kind of information, how they process it, how quick they process it. And it almost tends to correlate directly with how well they perform on the field. Remarkable. How they can intake it and, and what they do with that information. I could it'd be the same thing as getting like a game plan on an offense, right? I mean, right. that, that doesn't surprise me, at least, because I feel like quarterbacking, again, the, what, the, the non-sort of physical aspect of quarterback is processing a ton of data in kind of high-dimensional data in real time. You know, scheme, you scheme plus all the players' movement and your progressions and everything like that. That's got to be a huge kind of, you know, proxy for the skill set you actually need to quarterback well. It is. Funny story, when I first started working with some of the really elite quarterbacks, I was giving them the information and they were saying, okay, almost as fast as I was spitting the information. I'm like, oh, he's just blowing me off, right? He doesn't really care and doing all this. And then I go out in the field with him a week later and they retained all of it. I wasn't moving fast enough for them, yeah, right? Geez. For it to where the, I mean, they are so sharp and can process so quickly and refine it down even beyond of kind of cut out what I get off on a tangent on and just be able to nail it down to this is what I need to work on and what I'm going to lock in on. They're That's amazing remarkable. at that. So listen, Chris, we're going to have to let you go. But before we do, tell us a little bit about what the frontier is for you within your work. What are you pushing? What are you trying to improve? What is hard for you right now? Uh, the hardest part, right? It's just still like with anything, the unknown, right? I only know what I know to where when I started this, I, it seemed like the less I knew, the more certain I was. And now yeah. every time I answer a single question, I end up with five more. And it's like, oh my God, I don't know anything what's going on, right? <laughs> Those kind of things that hit. So it's, it's just working in that unknown. There's times it's fun, but there's times, you know, my number one thing with all this is do no harm. 
right? Only address things with the, with the athletes that we really know and feel like it can help them improve and just communicate with them. So for me, it's, yeah, I don't do a large number of athletes. I try and do it with a smaller number and we go really deep, right? Frequent mm-hmm. assessments, really personalized mm-hmm. and, and move through this very diligently and, mm-hmm. and always requiring patience and knowing things happen over time. Nothing, no quick fixes in this kind of thing. So that's, that's kind of where I am. It resonates with lots we hear from the best analysts out there. So it sounds like you're on a great track. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Love what you're doing. We look forward to hearing more about it down the road. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Chris S., owner of Biometric, a movement analysis company. He was featured part of an article um, Bruce Feldman just published on The Athletic this past week, working with some of the top quarterbacks in um, professional football and I'm sure college football and maybe even some of the elite high school work. Guys, that's been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here for the whole crew. Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen, who have been along in this last quarter. Audie Weiner, along in the first three. Matty D, boss man, Deion Simpkins, associate boss man. We couldn't do it without those two guys. Very much appreciated. Couldn't do it without you guys either. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, 